Welcome to Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik, where we bring you news, politics, and culture without the red and blue treatment. I'm Michelle Witte. I'm here with my co-host, John Kiriakou. Absolutely delighted to be here on a Monday. Does Excellent. anybody anybody else want the weekend to last longer? Nope, nope. Just thrilled to come in here and talk about uh, women getting arrested in Texas for maybe Scandalous. having, perf- you know, in- induced an abortion. Who knows what actually the case was there? Uh, yeah, we're going to talk about who's to blame for gas prices and just sort of probably bang our heads on lots of different surfaces. Yeah. The results of some of those polls. We've got French election results. We've got a, a, what appears to be a command shuffle uh, or you could call it a command introduction in the Russian war in Ukraine, which is a, kind of surprising. We've got protests in Pakistan over the ouster of Imran Khan. Uh, we have an interesting story about Huawei pulling out of Russia. Which would seem to be uh, something uh, could be a big deal. I I wish that I had been a party to that conversation because I think I understand why they did it. They don't want to unnecessarily risk further sanctions from the United States or or the European Union or the Canadians. Even they have a a big problem with the Canadians. Um, But then at the same time. You know, is is it a part of this bigger business effort to walk away from the Russian market? We saw, for example, uh, Chanel mm-hmm. uh, closing their shop last week in Moscow. And then one of the Russian models for Chanel took to YouTube with a with a big uh, shear oh, yeah. and chopped up all of her Chanel purses. Yeah. So I, I'd like to have been privy yeah. to that conversation just to see what they were talking about. Yeah, the first to report on this uh, seems to have been Forbes Russia, who said that Huawei had sent its Russian office employees on vacation for a month um, and now appears to be suspending sales there due to fear of secondary sanctions. Wow. So, yeah, that was it. Yep, exactly. Uh, We can get into some of these stories, I think, also. Uh, Oh, we're also, I hope, going to get an update on that. Uh, Do you remember that Buffalo police officers who pushed yeah. over a 75 year old man and then yeah. dozens more walked past him as he was lying the on the poor ground. Guy spent almost three weeks in the hospital with a traumatic brain injury, 75 years old. Listen, I don't want to ruin the suspense for anyone. It seems like nothing's going to happen to any of them. Quite Is that literally. correct? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Quite literally nothing. Uh, and, and you got to think some of them might have some bad dreams once in a while. I, I hope so, because the reasoning was was infuriating. They said that after reviewing the video multiple times, they determined that the reason he fell was not because he was shoved mm-hmm. by the cop, but because he had things in both of his hands. And oh, so okay. if he didn't, if he hadn't been holding anything, he could have regained his balance after the cop shoved him. That's like uh, COVID didn't kill you if you had diabetes. That's right. Yeah, that's ridiculous. Yeah, we're going to we're going to get an update on that later in the show. But let's talk about the election in France. Um, where uh, nothing surprising really happened, except perhaps for uh, an unexpectedly strong showing uh, by Jean-Luc Mélenchon, the the leftist candidate. Yeah, that was very surprising. Yeah, but uh, but, uh, otherwise, you know, we have Emmanuel Macron in a runoff with Marine Le Pen. Macron got about 28% of the vote in the first round. Le Pen got 23. Mélenchon almost to 22. Uh Very close. He did quite well uh, in the Paris suburbs. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, Quite I think he, well. he won a couple of, uh, yeah, of places, or at least one. We talked about this. We've talked about this uh, on the um, show before uh, about Le Pen in particular doing some uh, industrial cleaning of her 
program and reputation focusing on purchasing power and domestic economic issues rather than, uh, you know, I- immigrants destroying the national character of France and the usual <laughs> thing. So now you have Macron and Le Pen going to a runoff, which has been foretold. Um, as The Guardian puts it, both candidates need to convince the 49 percent of voters who didn't support either of them or uh, the 25 percent who didn't vote at all. Or mm-hmm. Both. Um, they are already casting Melanchon as a kind of kingmaker, which I think is a little bit unfair. He has explicitly advised his supporters not to vote for Le Pen. Yes. But because he has not yet also explicitly said vote for Macron, you know. Always an opportunity to uh, to blame a leftist for the poor showing right. of a centrist instead yeah, of the I actual behavior of the centrist. Yeah, yeah, me too. You're right. And the center right candidate whose name escapes me now and who got something like 7 percent uh, endorsed Macron, which w- was a help uh, for Macron. I, I agree with you. I, I think the New York Times analysis of this uh, this morning um, is is spot on. Macron's going to win but not by the giant lopsided numbers that he got last time against Le Pen. Mm -hmm. And the reason those numbers are going to be smaller is uh, twofold. One, Le Pen has done a really good job of casting herself as not a lunatic like her father, Mm -hmm. even if she might still be. Mm -hmm. She's done a good job of rehabilitating her reputation. Um, And second, people are still really angry about the yellow vest uh, controversy and the fact that inflation is eating away at their buying power. And essentially they're the same economic reasons that people are upset here in the United States. Yeah. So we'll see uh, later in the month. We will check in and how those campaigns are going. Uh, Also in Ukraine, we we have another sort of not surprise, right? If you've listened to a lot of guests on the show, what what they've been saying pretty consistently is that the the battle is really going to be in the Donbass. That's right? right. And that is what, appears to really be shaping up now at the battle, uh, both kind of concentrating in that area and also expanding in its nature. And so, you know, in, in the absence of any implementable agreements there over the status of the Donbass and the uh, Donetsk and Luhansk republics, it, it looks like it will be decided on the battlefield, which is pretty much, I think, what, what a lot of our guests have been predicting. The change here is that Russia has reportedly appointed a new top commander yes. for the war there. New might not be exactly the right term because, according to Western reports, at least this new person, General Alexander Dvornikov, would be the first overall commander of the war there. Uh, the Institute of the Study for War, uh, according to their assessment, says there, there had not been a single overall commander of the campaign previously, which has hindered the cooperation of Russian forces, which makes a a lot of sense. And there was a, John, I'm interested in your reaction to this. An NBC story suggested that the reshuffle points to kind of the origin of the war, saying it's it's initial fragmented nature points to a war that was not started by generals, but by spies and controlled by Putin himself and some members of Russia's intelligence Mm -hmm. community, and that they are looking at their the performance so far going, this isn't really what we wanted to see. And now we'll shift over the management to the people who manage wars. And I wondered if that uh, that makes makes sense sense to to me. That makes sense to me. And it would explain why the Russians at least appeared to want to go into Kiev Mm -hmm. and then didn't. Mm -hmm. You know, the the conventional wisdom is when you attack a country, you take the capital, Mm -hmm. right? Everybody, that would be the first thing that you would think to do. That's not really what the the Russians needed to do. Uh, They they said from the beginning that they wanted uh, 
Luhansk and uh, Donetsk. Uh, they wanted uh, to hang on to Crimea. Uh, they never said anything about Kiev. Yeah. And I, th- I think that when you have people who are not experienced war fighters, war fighting yeah. or, or leading the charge, they're going to make a mistake like sending armored columns toward the capital. I also heard and analysis that some back. of this stuff, you know, like uh, lobbing a couple of uh, whatever they lobbed at, at Odessa and appearing to move toward Kiev and, and the rest is, yeah, was faint. also a way to keep Ukrainian yeah. forces distracted. Yes, yes. While Russia, you know, prepared for what was always going to be a major battle in the east. So mm-hmm. the other thing that is happening along with the appointment of, of uh, this fellow, Dvornikov, is uh, much being made of the fact that he was a commander of Russian forces in Syria. Right. And so, of course, because we know only Russians commit war crimes, we are now being treated to a litany of those crimes, his, his alleged crimes oh, in Syria, uh, without, of course, any mention of the U.S. bombardment of Raqqa that killed thousands of civilians mm-hmm. or the targeting of dams and other civilian infrastructure or this infamous Task Force 9 and its history of blowing up uh, dozens of civilians at a time, including through overriding protocols that are supposed to prevent this. Yes. And so... To that end, I kind of I I wanted to point out this opinion piece by uh, conservative commentator Max Boot that was in The Washington Post today, uh, suggesting that (laughs) the Russian army is Trumpy. And that is why Trump is so somehow Donald Trump himself is is partly to blame or at least connected to uh, the uh, supposedly abhorrent behavior of of the Russian army in Ukraine. Uh, The piece is called Trump is wrong about war. Russia's failure in Ukraine shows why. And like Trump might be a lot of Good things, but grief. commander of Russian forces in Ukraine, he is. You cannot blame him for that guy. You know, Max Boot is a long time mouthpiece for the neoconservative movement, uh, both at the Council on Foreign Relations and at the American Enterprise Institute. This is vintage Max Boot. Vintage Boot. I love it, vintage <laughs> boots. You, I, <laughs> weird that I don't like this one. No, let me tell you. Illustrates really nicely something that we see all the time in American media and that we comment about all the time because, you know, look, eventually it's got to get through people's heads. And that is this refusal to connect past and present, even if they are right in front of you, literally speaking, one on top of the other. And so Boot starts his column by listing U.S. war crimes. Right. He talks about the bombing campaigns of the Vietnam War, many of which, of course, did not happen over Vietnam and were, of course, flatly illegal and undeclared. He mentions the My Lai massacre. Uh He mentions the calls by uh, generals to bomb Vietnam into the Stone Age. Right. That is the first paragraph. Turn it to glass. Yeah. In the second paragraph, he writes this more recently. Former President Donald Trump has been an enthusiastic advocate for war crimes. He endorsed torture, vowed to bomb the crap out of terrorists, suggested killing terrorists' families, and said the U.S. should steal Iraq's oil. Trump did not order the U.S. military to carry out war crimes. The military would never have done so. But it did par- <laughs> he did pardon members of the military accused of war crimes. And again, how this is just, I look, maybe it sounds like a small issue, but how can you go from a list of American war crimes to then stating as fact that the U.S. military would never commit war crimes if ordered to. And by the way, wasn't it Trump who uh, uh, certainly had some role in uh, American soldiers squatting on like a third of Syria, right? Sure. 
I mean, I do know, I will sure. say, I think we, he wanted to pull them out, right? And was sort of, there was slow walked and, and overrode. He, he did. But, but then you'll recall, too, just a couple of weeks into his presidency, he, uh, he launched a bombing strike. Yeah. So, again, it, it's just amazing to me that you can go look at all this terrible stuff in the past that is absolutely, it, it, it is in, impossible to contemplate that it is happening right now. Uh, and so this is the whole problem, I think, with trying trying to analyze the war in Ukraine in real time, relying on American sources, because all we know is that everyone who has informed us about wars in the past has been lying about it. Yes. And are they lying in every instance now? Probably not. But who knows which ones are and which ones aren't and when we will get a full reckoning. We didn't get a reckoning of Raqqa until what? Last week? That's was right. when we got last that Last week for the very first time. Yeah. And so, again, it, it's just amazing to me that you can say, oh, yeah, uh, uh, just a few years ago, a few, oh, a few years ago. Sure, we were torturing people. Sure, we See, were, we were uh, uh, using, using banned weapons, et cetera, et cetera. Right. But now, no, absolutely not. Categor- and categorically state that there should be a little citation. There should be a citation next to that to demonstrate to me why why you should be able to state that as fact in a newspaper. I think you're exactly right. Outrageous. Outrageous. Uh, we also have uh, the EU. You mentioned uh, Zelensky on 60 Minutes. I didn't watch yeah, that. Yeah, they gave him 40 minutes yeah. on, on 60 Minutes yesterday. It was a, it was a, a not, I, I'm, I want to use the, the term puff piece, but it was more than that. It mm-hmm. was, it was almost um, hagiographic, you know? Yeah. I mean, that has But that's been... fine. That's sure. fine. I mean, that's what 60 Minutes does. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, what can you say? No, it's just a straight. I mean, well, all you can say again is what exactly is that? What is the purpose of this uh, full court public relations press? And that's what if it, it was. is not. If it is not to prepare us for some some new level of involvement, which, again, doesn't seem coming. So what, well, what you is said this something to today that uh, we don't know if it's true yet or not. But mm-hmm. uh, but a Le Figaro uh, reporter is saying that uh, he has learned that American special forces have been in. Ukraine from the very beginning. Yeah. We don't know if that's true or not. As well as UK special forces. UK this special was someone forces. who was a, a French intelligence source talking to a yeah, Le Figure reporter uh, as Boris Johnson visited Kiev. And again, mm-hmm. so this is an unnamed source. Right. There's been we lots can't of, confirm. No. But it would make it would make tactical sense. Yeah. And certainly we know that the US has been training Ukrainian forces in that's in, right. in the in eastern Ukraine. Uh, up until right before the war started and in the United States, I think s- still to this day, oh, yeah. training in, them on the operation Texas of and North Carolina. switchblade drones and, right. and other uh, uh, military equipment yep. that we're sending to them. That so, is yeah, right. I mean, uh, we will learn the extent of our involvement in this uh, later on. But obviously, the, it's it's more than we know right now because the little bits of it keep dribbling out. Yes. We also have the EU uh, congratulating itself on beginning the accession process for Ukraine, which is very. It's, yeah. It's, they keep referring it as a questionnaire that you have to fill out. Yeah, you fill out a questionnaire. You have to fill out a questionnaire. <laughs> Usually, that process takes years. Yeah. I guess. Several and years. The, the head of the EU has promised that this initial table. It will take weeks rather than months to well, complete this initial step. Well, but then you have the step. Moldovans and the Georgians saying, well, what about us? Yeah. How come our questionnaires have to take three years? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Man, what a hell of a question. You ever, like, open up one of those questions online that's like, answer a few. This will take whatever. And right. just, you just have to keep, you can't close that tab for three years. There's new questions keep popping up. That's terrible. <laughs> Questionnaire. Surely there is a more appropriate description for what that actually is. Because I can't imagine. Also, like, what kind of questionnaire is Ukraine filling out that its neighbors couldn't fill out for it? You know, to tell you the truth, for the other ones, the other countries, Georgia and Moldova, 
I'd like to know what's in it for the European Union to admit Georgia and Moldova. They're going to be drains on on, uh, you know, riches. The Germans and the French are going to end up having to to build those economies like they did the Greeks to a lesser extent, the Irish and the Spanish, mm-hmm. the Italians. I, I don't get what's in it for the wealthier countries. Well, maybe that's why they're not in the union. <laughs> You know, I mean, because I don't think the EU, I don't think the EU is much different from any other organization of uh, bigger and smaller and wealthier and poorer countries. And that, I, you know, I think the EU yeah. also uh, exists to help larger and wealthier countries exploit. Yeah, that's what it comes less down powerful to. Ones. So, sure. Yeah. Maybe they haven't gotten uh, exploitable enough yet. Well, maybe we'll ask this of our next guest who's waiting. So don't quaking in your boots waiting for this question. We're going to take a quick break here and, and come right back. You're listening to Political Misfits. We're on Radio Sputnik. We're live in D.C. and we'll see you in a minute. Welcome back to Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik, where we bring you news, politics, and culture without the red and blue treatment. I'm Michelle Witte here with John Kiriakou getting into kind of a grab bag here of stories. Yeah. Some international ones, some uh, domestic economic ones, a few uh, political ones. Uh, might even hope we uh, get to review what is happening in Haiti. But at any rate, joining us for all of them will be John Jeter. He's an author and two-time Pulitzer Prize finalist and a foreign, uh, former Washington Post bureau chief. John, thank you for being here. Thank you for having me. Let's start in Ukraine, uh, talking about a little more fallout from that war. Uh, you have Finland and Sweden now uh, in, in their different ways, uh, renewing discussion about joining NATO, which is kind of the same uh, uh, sort of uh, metaphorically and philosophically the same as uh, Ukraine's process for joining the EU right now, which is to say you're in the very, very early stages of kind of thinking about it and preparing to do it. Sweden and Finland are already close to NATO. Both of them do drills with the bloc. They are seen as allies. Um, But full membership would be different. Russia has said it would have to respond to any such moves. And I just wanted to ask, you know, what what you think of this possibility of NATO expanding further, if this was inevitable or if uh, this invasion of Ukraine is resulting in exactly the consequences Russia said it didn't want. Yeah, I... Well, the the short answer is I don't know. Um, my nice. suspicion, <laughs> <laughs> right? My suspicion is that. Um, well, no, I, I I have to be honest. My most uh, sort of urgent question is whether or not NATO, as we know it, will exist in five years. Mm-hmm. Um, I I hear, um, you know, Europe is in deep crisis now. Even though, of course, it's not reported that way in the United States. I, I think we see this with. Um, you know, Hungary and Orban and his ambivalence about uh, 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 the Ukrainian crisis, even though Hungary is a member of NATO. Um, we see this in the French elections yesterday, which I understand uh, Macron uh, is still expected to win. But um, the challenge from uh, Marie Le Pen, who is from the far right, um, kind of a Donald Trump mini me, I guess, mm-hmm. uh, is very real. And so I just wonder if. Uh, we will hear in the next uh, upcoming months and the upcoming years, and we will start to hear more and more from uh, the European uh, public, 
population, the voters. Mm -hmm. uh, and especially with, uh, I just heard an astounding statistic, I'm not sure if it's true, but uh, that Russia and Ukraine produce 12% of the world's calories. Uh, which I just find astounding. That that makes sense to me because Ukraine alone produces, I think it's 9% of the world's wheat. So yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, it does make sense. Yeah, I, I, I thought so too. But, uh, you know, if that's the case, I mean, if we're talking about rising food prices, rising fuel, uh, rising food prices, rising fuel prices, particularly in Europe, uh, I just wonder if the, if the, if the people, the voters, are going to stand for Sweden and Finland even discussing joining NATO, that doesn't seem, I mean, as, as far as I know, you can't eat uh, weapons. Um, mm -hmm. And I, I just don't, uh, I don't see it, I guess is what I'm saying. I don't see it. I, I uh, you know, anything can happen. I don't know. The situation is very volatile right now mm -hmm. in the world, as we see with Pakistan and the coup that they just had, which uh, uh, Imran Khan denounced as openly as a U.S.-led plot. So the situation is very volatile. And I, I couldn't say what's going to happen, but I just suspect that uh, we're in a we're seeing a tectonic shift, and it's happening gradually. Of course, I guess as tectonic shifts tend to happen, and uh, I'm just not. I, I I wouldn't bet the farm on Finland or Sweden joining NATO. That's I guess that's all I would say. You know, you've you've just reminded me, uh, John, of something that I heard when I had first joined the CIA. That that one of the biggest challenges we had in sub-Saharan Africa during the Cold War was that we were trying to bring democracy. Right? I mean, this is laughable now, of course, but it, we were trying to bring democracy to sub-Saharan Africa in the 1960s and 1970s. And we couldn't understand why the Soviets were having uh, so much success there. And finally, somebody said, and this is possibly apocryphal, but you bring democracy, they bring food. And, uh, you know, when when you have to worry about whether or not you're going to have enough enough calories to uh, to get through the day, then you you have to think about making choices like that. I, I think that's a, yeah, I think that's exactly right. I think that's exactly right. I mean, I think the other interesting question here on that topic is, you know, this is being sold as a as a global conflict when, the, you know, mm -hmm. when all countries in the world have clearly taken sides. That's simply not true. Even the even the vote to expel Russia from the human rights, U.N. Human Rights Commission, there were like dozens of abstentions. Right. That's there's right. just a sort of effort to really ignore the fact that quite a lot of countries have not been eager to sign on uh, to Western res Western responses to this invasion because it's not necessarily in their own self-interest, you know, especially countries that rely on a lot of these uh, Ukrainian and Russian agricultural exports. Mm -hmm. Right. And so I wonder if also if it's not I mean, you know. Raising this begs the question of like how much power does does for example Africa ever have? But like these are the places. One, this is these are the regions where most of the uh, abstentions are in Africa and in some parts of of Asia. And these are the places that are probably going to most feel the sort of uh, more far reaching consequences right. of this. And I wonder if it will you know before we see it in Europe, we will see some kind of uh, organized opposition to being made to pay for. Uh, somebody else's geopolitical conflict. You know what I mean, John? Yeah, no, I know exactly what you mean. I think Africa definitely is going to be, you know, Africa has been going through uh, a kind of series of crises for the last 20 years that's gone largely unreported. You've seen 
a real democratization effort in countries like Tanzania and and Angola, where they're trying to become more transparent and to deal with the sort of uh, uh, residual corruption from the colonial and neo-colonial era. But at the same time, we've seen this militarization of Africa, uh, which has created terrorism uh, and fomented coups. Uh, and the terrorism we've not seen for in, in countries, for instance, like Mozambique, which has been a largely peaceful country since they uh, uh, settled their civil war back in 1975, or I guess 1992, actually, was when it was really settled. Um, and, and so we, we see these series of, 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 of crises, uh, and, and they contextualize Africans, and I mean everyday Africans, certainly in the cities, they contextualize this very differently than we do in the United States. Uh, for instance, in South Africa, which has been a fairly uh, uh, um, silent on Russia's uh, uh, invasion of Ukraine. Uh, in other words, they've abstained quite a bit from uh, criticizing Russia at the UN. And the reason, uh, or one of the big reasons, of course, is uh, the United States support for apartheid, which is still on the minds of many people. Even though, even those who aren't old enough to remember apartheid, they still have that kind of historical memory. And the other thing, of course, is the destruction of Libya, which is a huge deal across Africa. Uh, we don't talk about it much in the United States, but uh, Muammar Gaddafi, at the time of his death, I think I think if you had taken a vote, if you could have managed to have taken a vote, he would have been seen as the leading pan-Africanist of his day. Without a uh, doubt. Of, of his time, yeah. And at the same time, uh, he was beloved. And I saw this, I saw this personally. Uh, you know, we describe him as eccentric, and I think he was, right? Uh, and, and not a perfect man um, by any stretch of the imagination. I think a very, very contradictory man in a lot of ways. But he was beloved by Africans. He was—I uh, saw him at the rebranding of the um, uh, African Union back in 2002. I saw him appear at Durban with all the other elected heads of state uh, in Mbeki in South Africa, I think was there, and Mugabe from Zimbabwe at the sort of— uh, and uh, as his as his popularity was declining, but he was still very popular. And I swear, um, by far, uh, Gaddafi got the loudest applause of all the leaders who spoke at that event. So, uh, you know, there's a there's, it's just a lot of volatility in the world right now, in the global economy, in the global in the global politics. Uh, I don't know where this is going to end up, but I don't think it's going to be the same as it's been for the last 20 years. I'll say that. I also wanted to talk to you about uh, some of the response at home, right? There, there was a new um, a poll out yesterday uh, saying that a significant majority of Americans blame Vladimir Putin for the recent spike in America's gas prices, but almost as many blame oil companies. And so when I saw that, I mean, of course, John and I are, have been talking and will be talking for the next several months about the midterms and yep. the way prices are going to affect uh, the prospects for Joe Biden's party. Um, I might think that Americans blaming Putin for gas prices uh, would be good for Joe Biden, you know, and also blaming you oil think? companies because that's who he has been, you know, he, he has been pointing the finger at. And I think, you know, not incorrectly. The same poll, uh, however, found that 68 percent of Americans disapprove of the way Biden is handling uh, the high fuel prices and only 20 percent don't blame him for their rise. Uh, it also noted that for 21 percent of respondents, the gas prices are causing them serious financial hardship. And so I wanted to talk, John, about how Americans perceive their financial situations and who they are given to blame. 
you know, and I, and I wonder if you think that actually Joe Biden, you know, it, it is a difficult thing to have, you know, very high inflation and very high gas prices to be heading into an election year. And I, I wonder if actually maybe he's not doing such a bad job at, at diverting some of that blame away from him and his party's policies and toward external actors. Well, no, I, I agree. I, uh, you know, Russia, I think, is winning the, the war militarily. But in uh, terms of the public relations, the propaganda, the United States and the West is winning hand over fist. I mean, they're just uh, they have dominated the narrative. Um, I don't know if that's going to end up to be a strategic mistake by Russia or not. But certainly for now, they've dominated the narrative. So it's. I think it's it's uh, troubling for the Democrats, at least that there's still uh, a very divided public opinion in terms of who is to blame for rising prices, which we will see rise even further. I don't know how the United States will put that genie back in the bottle quickly. And so, you know, oddly enough, for people of a certain age, like myself, Mm -hmm. uh, my suspicion is that uh, Joe Biden will face uh, roughly the same fate as Jimmy Carter uh, when we saw uh, rising uh, prices, you know, runaway rampant inflation. And then we saw the overkill to correct it. Now that option doesn't even exist, right? We can't sort of raise interest rates in a way that will kill inflation because we raise interest rates, we'll tank what, what's left of our productive sectors of our economy. So we can't even, we don't even have that option. And so I, I just, I, you know, again, you know, I, I don't have a crystal ball. Mm-hmm. No one should be trusted who says they know what's going to happen. But I just foresee an electoral bloodbath for the Democrats in the midterms and very possibly there's still a long time left. Who knows what's going to happen, but very possibly in 2024 as well. I just don't. I, you know, and, and the key, of course, for the Democrats is the black turnout. And, uh, of course, blacks famously stayed home for uh, Hillary Clinton's election. Mm-hmm. And I expect that it will be uh, there will be a, a much less turnout in 2024, if things continue the way they are, uh, the blacks simply aren't going to come out and vote for Joe Biden, who's delivered absolutely nothing of value to the black community in the United States. Mm-hmm. I wanted to talk to you sort of on, on the subject of black voters uh, to talk to you about the the reporting that's come out on the Black Lives Matter Global Network Foundation. There, New York Magazine did an initial story a, a couple, I think p- perhaps a couple of months ago. Then they did another big story just last week about the way some of the huge donations that that particular foundation has gotten have been spent, uh, including seeming to go toward, you know, big expensive houses and also uh, Internet content creation and social messaging, social media messaging. And, you know, John and I talked about this a little bit in the past. Uh, You know, this is not new. You have chapters of Black Lives Matter for years now uh, publicly calling on the leaders in particular of that foundation to be more transparent in in, uh, their fundraising and their the direction of that money. Um, They have been complaining about the actions of leadership again at that particular global network foundation and saying, you know, we have we have people in these chapters who are trying to get funding for physical on the ground uh, infrastructure or uh, movements that will directly help people. And we are concerned about tens of millions of dollars being spent uh, for what seems like content creation. And when we talked about this, John and I, I thought, you know, what what has happened uh, to pretty, I think, successfully divorce one element, but a very big and public facing element of the Black Lives Matter movement from grassroots chapters uh, really illustrates how you can use the Internet and social media to divert funding from grassroots efforts that are a little bit more radical and that are do cause a little bit more upheaval. And I think this has been very convenient 
for Democrats to to have a sort of offshoot for these uh, millions of dollars that they can say are going toward racial justice without really going toward directly helping black people in a lot of cases. And I, I wondered what you think of, of this controversy and the way it's been coming out. Yeah, well, I think, you know, there's um, I don't think the Black Lives Matter, the, the global movement has had much uh, legitimacy in the black community since uh, probably early 2015. You know, I just don't think that they have much buy in from the community. And I think that reflects uh, the nature of philanthropy in the United States and its ineffectiveness dating back at least to the 1968 Brooklyn school strike in which black and Puerto Rican parents wanted to uh, uh, design the curriculum and hire the teachers for their overwhelmingly black and Puerto Rican school district. And they were blocked. Well, they were helped initially by the Ford Foundation, but they ended up being blocked by the Ford Foundation, which took this very sort of a top-down view of philanthropy, and they were trying to steer uh, the the school strike, the, the protesting uh, teachers, I mean, uh, parents, trying to steer them towards uh, something that they did not want. So that's been the sort of uh, uh, relationship between philanthropies, the big ones in, in particular, and the communities that they that they say they serve uh, for more than fifty years now, right? Very top-down, and so they're. They're estranged, really, from the people that they say they serve. Black Lives Matter is is a perfect example of that, right? They just really have very little contact, very little relationship with the black community, and particularly the working class black community they say they serve. And so what I hope, what I really hope will happen is that people won't sort of uh, 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 drill down on the whole identity politics thing, which, you know, there's some truth to, although I would always, I would say to my friends, you know, you got to understand who created identity politics, right? It wasn't the, the working class black community. It was it was the elites and the oligarchs and, and the foundations, right? Uh, but I hope that this will spur a conversation about, um, uh, you know, philanthropies, how that money would best be spent if we're going to give them a tremendous tax break, right? Like, like I think the big foundations, for the most part, I think this is still true, they can spend 4% of their of their entire fund per year, and they get—they uh, only pay two percent taxes. They pay—they uh, spend five percent and get one percent taxes. They pay one percent tax. So, if we're going to give them a tax break like that, well, what are you doing, right? What are you contributing to society? We've seen these movements pop up in the past, particularly in 2010 after the Great Recession or during the Great Recession. I suspect it's going to happen again, but I hope the conversation will be beyond just sort of you know identity politics and the failure of Black Lives Matter, which has, which is a failure, right? Is no question about that. Black Lives Matter is a is an abject failure, although they have at least sort of, um, they were at least a trigger for a, that's the wrong word, they were at least a catalyst for uh, a, a broader conversation about police abuse in the black community, especially. Uh, but I hope it's, I hope the conversation that we come up with, the, the solution that we come up with is more than just Black Lives Matter and the failure of identity politics and more a conversation about, you know, uh, this relationship between philanthropies, uh, where the money that they should be spending on the community in terms of taxes, where it's going, how it might be better spent to help uh, communities, uh, black and white, that are very clearly in trouble. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, I mean, you're, you're bringing up sort of a, a identity politics and sort of identity and representation uh, kind of uh, being set up as a goals or directions for change in lieu of uh, real sort of on the ground economic changes kind of reminds me we had Chris Smalls in studio, uh, not for as long as we would have liked to on Friday. But that seems to be sort of an area where, you know, Amazon thought 
I don't know. Amazon thought they had someone who they could set up as the mm-hmm. face of the U.S. working class who wasn't didn't look like someone who was going to be sympathetic, didn't, you know, like and, and has really, uh, you know, sort of like you want to say, OK, representation matters. Here's a here's a real face of, of the U.S. working class and, and U.S. organizing. And, uh, you know, I think that it I think it, it backfired there a lot. Yeah. And I, I would suspect that Amazon does not know the history of the black radical voice, the black working class voice in the history of labor organizing dating back to we can go back to the Knights of Labor and, and uh, after the Civil War or even back to the Great Depression and what happened on the uh, waterfront in San Francisco on the West Coast uh, when blacks were finally allowed to join the white dock workers unions. And that was the catalyst for change. And so, you know, I, I, I never knew uh, whether or not Chris Smalls and his group were going to win this fight. And it's still an open question, I mm-hmm. think. Right. But I certainly knew that um, uh, he is the he is the representative of the kind of people who organize the workforce. Right. He is. It, it comes from people like Chris Smalls. And so uh, it, it just is right. You are in the workforce. You know, I think mm-hmm. very importantly. Bottom up. But it's got to mm-hmm. be, you know, everything. That's the whole problem with the United States right now. Everything is top down. Right. We've got the political parties. The Democrats tell the voters what to do and what to think. The press tells the people what to think. Right. It's not a reflection of what people think. It's telling them what to think. The labor unions are very much the same thing. I and mean, that's really why the, the labor unions have failed in the United States over the last 50 years, is because they're too much top down. Uh, and the, the working people, the people, the rank and file uh, have a very different view of mm-hmm. their workforce, of the world uh, and how and how labor unions can actually change the world, not just the shop floor, but the world in general. And so, uh, yeah, you know, we're just at a very strange moment where there's no. You know, I, I use this analogy all the time, so maybe it's kind of becoming a cliche at this point, at least for me. But uh, it's almost like we walked into this Tower of Babel, 330 million people. We walked to this Tower of Babel, I don't know, maybe 20, 25 years ago. And now we're emerging on the other side and everybody's speaking a different language. Right. And so the, the question is, how do we get back on the same page? I, You know, I think it's an open question whether or not we can. But um, certainly that is the objective. That's where we need to get to. I also wanted to ask before we let you go, uh, it just about, you know, speaking of going top down, you have the Wall Street Journal here uh, arguing that tax the rich or eat the rich is a pointless rallying cry in the United States because we don't have enough rich people. We don't have enough billionaires and trillionaires. Even if we took all their money, we couldn't afford all of the things that whiny progressive progressives want. Right. That's the point of this whole story. Um, And I wanted to get your thoughts on what I think is a little bit of a sleight of hand. The story says the lack of rich people is why Europe soaks its middle class to fund its welfare state and offers uh, some data about the top statutory tax rates in the U.S., The uh, top statutory tax rate on income kicks in at roughly nine times the average wage. In Denmark, it begins at 1.3 times the average wage. In Sweden, it's 1.1 time. Um, And so (laughs) I think it's interesting that it's suggesting that it's always sort of suggesting that this money is going toward other people. Right. Toward a welfare state that the middle class does not use, as though in those countries they do not use public health care or public transportation or public education, you know, cheap public transit, all of that. I think it is a trick that we let them get away with to pretend all of this spending would go to someone other than yourself if you're in the middle class. And I wanted to get your thoughts on that and also your thoughts on how it's pointless to tax the rich, uh, the rich more because we don't have enough of them anyway. Yeah, well, you know, the, the you know, <laughs> it's, it's just the, the, the rich, they don't really change their playbook much, right? And so the question of 
you know, uh, how does the few uh, defeat the many? Well, you have to divide the many, right, into different uh, uh, different factions, right? And that's what they do. Uh, but but the, the the problem is that, and I think I hope I believe the American people are are will be eventually will wise up to this, right? The question of taxing the rich uh, uh, is not just sort of like uh, a, 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 you know a, a tax, right? Like there are many different ways you can tax, right? So for instance, you know uh, maybe it's not really a question of taxing the rich, but like uh, maybe the rich shouldn't own everything that they own, right? Maybe maybe housing is something that the people should own, right? Uh, you know, man, that's fine. Maybe the rich will own some housing, but the people will own their own housing too in communities. And so there should be there should be not be a thing as such as homelessness, right? So you know, we talk about taxing the rich. I mean, I think it's a, it's a it's a question that leads to you know uh, what's public space, what's the space for all of us. And how much should the rich be allowed to have, right? Should the rich be able to um, own utilities, right? Why why do they own electricity and water, right? Like you know, like the like the case in Bolivia from from uh, I guess about 15 years ago where they forbade the Bolivians from even collecting rainwater because they own the water. They wanted you to pay for it, yeah, right? Like I remember is that. Is that really a fair arrangement? Like is this is this? So I think it's it's a much broader conversation that needs to be had about what the public should own and what should be left to private hands. I don't know where that should necessarily end up. I mean, I'm not uh, I'm not necessarily for the pro- prohibition of all uh, private property, but I certainly believe that a lot more public, uh, a lot more property should be in the hands of the public, uh, of the public uh, in the United States, just as a matter of fairness. And also as a matter of, you know, this, the economy doesn't work. And the reason it doesn't work is because rich people have too much money. The people who would buy their goods and services that they sell, don't have enough money to buy the goods and services. So, you know, that's part of the conversation too, right? Like, it, 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 to some, we need some equilibrium. Like, even even Milton Friedman would have argued that, right? <laughs> it can't just be rich people. I believe you would have anyway. <laughs> it can't just be rich people having all the money and the and the poor and working class having none. Because then, well, who's how do you how do you muster demand mm-hmm. in a demand economy? I mean, hopefully someone other than us uh, here is considering these questions, John. That's all the time we have. That was journalist and author John Jeter. You can find more from him at J-O-N-J-E-T-E-R dot com and the same spelling at uh, Twitter. Thanks for joining us today, John. Thank you. You're listening to Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik. We're live in D.C. and we'll be right back. Welcome back to Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik, where we bring you news, politics, and culture without the red and blue treatment. I'm Michelle Witte here with John Kiriakou getting into now, I mean, really uh, belatedly, right? But we could probably talk about this every week, uh, getting into the uh, absolute deluge deluge of anti-gay, anti-trans, and anti-abortion legislation that is happening in U.S. state houses. Joining us for that conversation is Morgan Archukina, the writer and news editor at Sputnik News. Morgan, thank you for being here. Hi, thanks for having me. Uh, so, you know, last month already, just at the end of March, uh, NBC had a piece out that noted that nearly 240 anti-LGBT and anti-trans bills had been proposed in state houses just in 2022. 
Uh, and since then, some of the more egregious ones have been signed into law, notably in Florida uh, just last week or maybe even over the weekend. I forget if it was Friday or this weekend in Alabama. And so I wanted to just let you update us on, on what you think some of the more concerning laws signed into law or proposals on their way to being law uh, are and, and where, where we should be watching. Yeah, I think um, I think there's, yeah, like more than um, I mean, obviously all, all counts tend to be out of date um, because there are new ones coming in all the time. Um, but it's certainly um, pretty heinous numbers in any rate. Um, I, I think. Yeah, there have been a lot of bills that have been signed um, or that are making progress uh, through through state houses. Um, of course, uh, Florida's don't say gay uh, law now, you know, got a lot of attention. Um, and now there are kind of copycats in Ohio and um, some other states, too. Um, but there's also been most most of these anti LGBTQ bills are anti trans and most of the anti trans bills are anti trans youth uh, bills barring trans girls from playing girls sports um, seeking to ban or severely limit um, trans children's access to gender affirming health care and things like that um, but there's also bills in there like bathroom bills um, a, a bathroom bill passed in Alabama on Friday. And to be clear, when you say a bathroom bill, it's a bill that insists that students have to use the bathroom corresponding to their assigned gender at birth, regardless of their uh, their actual gender. Right, right. There was maybe seven or eight years ago, there was a, a very infamous one that North Carolina passed. And, you know, there was like, like Bon Jovi refused to play there and things like that. Right. And there was kind of this boycott and they kind of got shamed into getting rid of it. But it's coming back because of the, the way that the demonization of trans people and trans women specifically has really played into this like idea that like trans women are predators who pose a danger to women who pose a danger to children uh and and all of that and that's really what's kind of fueling a lot of these bills i mean it, it goes deeper than that but that's kind of the 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 front facing um angle of of these attacks you know um uh, Fox News has had dozens and dozens of segments every day about this stuff, just really hammering home this idea. And they're, the latest term that they use uh, is groomer. Mm -hmm. And they're claiming that, you know, um, uh, LGBTQ people and, and trans people specifically are are grooming children in the way that a child predator does um, or, or or something to, you know, kind of recruit them into like the LGBTQ community or something. Well, I think also at the heart of this is an idea and it, it is built on this idea that somehow uh, like mentioning heterosexual relationships in front of children or, or acting them out, right. Performing them is, is not sexual, but anything to do with any uh, non heterosexuality or a gender identity that's not the one you're saying, that is somehow sexualized, right? So they're sort of sexualizing gender except in a specifically heteronormative way. So if you talk about your husband to your second grade class, that's not sexualizing children. But if you're a man and you talk about your husband to your second grade class, then you're grooming them. And it's just sort of like... It, it, that, I think, is what it rests on. And yeah, it's really building on this idea uh, that that anything that is not heterosexuality is is probably uh, sexually predatory. Yeah. I, well, I always say that, you know, straight conservative, you know, people think more about gay sex than gay people do. Um, so it's it's yeah, there's this idea that it's this that it's this kind of like sexual 
deviancy and yet inherently sexual thing to it. And you make a great point that, you know, from the moment that you have, you know, that a child is an infant, you know, if you have, you know, a a girl infant and she like smiles at, you know, a man who holds her, it's like, ooh, is that your boyfriend? Like we are already inculcating children with a sexual ideology from the moment that they're even before they're born. It's already decided, you know, based on basically basic on how the doctor judges what your genitals look like when you come out of the womb that at that moment you're assigned a gender at birth and it's already decided who you're who it's acceptable for you to love how how it's acceptable for you to behave and what your roles will be in life and i think in that there is as much of a link with um with abortion uh and and women's roles in general because of this effort to say it's the same lawmakers who are behind both of both of these angles of attacks, the Mm -hmm. anti LGBTQ slash anti trans and these anti abortion laws. It's the same people. And really their ultimate goal is they want to assign you a gender at birth and you're not allowed to deviate from that. So if you're assigned female at birth, you're, you're assigned baby maker at birth, you're assigned home caretaker at birth and they want that to be the only rule. And so Trans men can't be trans because you were assigned baby maker at birth. Mm-hmm. So you're not allowed to break that rule. Trans women can't be women because then you would have women who are not baby makers who mm-hmm. do not have this, you know, attribute we've been told is unique of women. And so they break the rule, too. And so you can't have people breaking these rules. Let's talk also about this uh, wild story that came up over the weekend and has not been resolved, but has been resolved, you know, at least a little bit in terms of the detention of this individual. Uh, A woman was arrested on Thursday and actually put in jail on accusations of conducting a self-induced abortion for herself. Uh, This woman, Lizelle Harris, she's 26. She was arrested and jailed on Thursday on a $500,000 bond which was paid by a reproductive rights advocacy group. Uh, reportedly, she was she was out of jail by Sunday. And the charges have been the, the charges have been dismissed by uh, the local D.A. who says this was never a criminal matter to begin with, not even under the current uh, absolutely nightmarish Texas law. Um, there is no law in Texas that authorizes treating people who have miscarriages, stillbirths or abortions as murderers. This uh, infamous law, SB 8, that allows private citizens to sue anyone who helps a woman get an abortion is, first of all, a civil provision. So you shouldn't be arrested and put in jail for it. But also it's not applied to the person getting an abortion. It's applied to the people around that person who who facilitate that process. But what seems like what happened in the case of this woman, Herrera, uh, is that uh, she was reported to the police by the hospital that was treating her. And then uh, authorities seem to have wildly overreached by arresting her for something that they probably should have known was not a crime. And so even though right now she is free and it doesn't look like she is going to be charged with a crime, uh, this is a very frightening turn of events. Yeah, definitely. Um, and I think, you know, you look it's, you look at these kinds of cases where, yeah, she there's it's not clear what law they could have possibly arrested her under or charged her under, especially because I'm pretty sure that Texas has a law that says you can't exactly you specifically cannot. You can't charged. It's black for and white a, law self for for self for, for aborting your own fetus. There there are certain questions about like, you know, if you have if you help somebody, whatever. But like if you do it yourself to yourself. No. Yeah. And that's that's one of the most heinous things. But I think 
I think what you know, I mean, it's it's apparent with the the direction in Texas, the direction that they're going um, with with abortion, with, uh, you know, SB8. And there was another law that was passed in September, I think, that, you know, um, very heavily tried to very heavily restrict the ability of people to get access to abortion medication, like a, a pill abortion mm-hmm. and things like that. But the effort is is to to scare women into not you know what I mean? Like Mm -hmm. this from beginning to end was never she was never going to be charged. She was never actually going to be, you know, sentenced for murder, found guilty of anything. But but it just it instills more fear in people. Yeah, Uh, certainly it can disrupt your life, especially if you're work if you're working a minimum wage job, you don't have paid time off or something like that. You know, you have to you spend a day in jail, you spend a couple days in jail, maybe you lose, you know, lose some income, maybe you lose your job, Uh, maybe, you know, your case doesn't get very quickly to the uh, deep pocketed organization who can pony up that cash for you to get out. I mean, yeah, it is if it is, you know, I, I. one incident is not enough for me to say this is sort of a terrorism by uh, Texas authorities, but this would be that, you know, do, do something to to scare people into behaving the way you want them to, whether it's legal or not. Yeah, well, I, that's what I, th- I think is it's the wider implication of like now everybody knows that, oh, remember that time that woman, you know, it happened. They know that has a very chilling effect on things even more so. And I think it's not a coincidence that this is in Texas, which has really kind of gone off the deep end. Like I was saying with, you know, this this link between abortion and LGBTQ rights, um, Texas is also the state that um, recently the attorney general and the governor moved to try and deem um, giving um, trans children gender affirming, not just gender affirming care, but even gender affirming like social like, you know, approval um, to be child abuse and ordered child protective services to investigate the parents of trans children, um, which can only lead to taking the children from them and forcing them to detransition, um, which, you know, I mean, trans activists, when this started happening, trans activists, you know, started noting this is what they've done to indigenous people for a long time. And uh, and, you know, it's it's. If it's been temporarily enjoined for the moment, um, and I think they knew that was going to happen, but this sent waves of terror across the country. This has people, you know, using the word genocide uh, and and I think is a signal of where people want to go with this and how they want they want people to fear and and know that, like, if we get a chance, that's what we're going for, you know, so don't don't even think don't get comfortable with the idea that you have the right to an abortion. Um, even if you do it to yourself, don't get comfortable with the idea that it's okay to love your child no matter who they are, you know, so. Yeah, I wanted to ask, we've just got a minute or two left. You talked about the temporary injunction of that uh, Texas law, but what can you tell us about any legal challenges to some of these other laws, in particular, maybe the one in Alabama that I know passed recently? Um, Well, the ACLU uh, and uh, Lambda Legal and, you know, these other um, LGBTQ advocacy groups, they all say that they're going to be bringing lawsuits um, against, you know, all of these bills. But the thing is, there are are dozens and dozens of these bills. And even a group with as much resources as the ACLU is not going to be able to challenge these across the board. And so that really has people wondering, why is the Biden administration, which has repeatedly come out and said, trans kids, I've got your back, you know, all this stuff, you know, really postured early in his administration as being this pro LGBTQ. I saved you all from like, you know, Trump Mm -hmm. with those first first day um executive orders where is he he's asleep at the wheel you know and and there's been really 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 weak like comments you know coming out of the department of justice and whatever in in that direction and if i was a conservative lawmaker who was bent on you know 
getting rid of, um, you know, the publicly public LGBTQ people and whatever. I would not be intimidated in the slightest by what the Biden administration is saying and doing, um, you know, uh, uh, to, to, to fight that. Mm -hmm. And uh, so it has a lot of people really kind of feeling like we're up the down the river without a paddle. Yeah, there has been quite a lot of lip service. And as you say, if you're just sort of playing whack-a-mole every time one of these new laws comes up, you run out of resources, you run out of attention. And in the meantime, you know, everything that gets back burned, these are actual people who are, you know, maybe being forced to detransition in front of their classmates, being forced to use facilities that aren't appropriate and doing other things that are, you know, frightening for adults, let alone for, for children having to be, you know, made into a political battlefield. It's uh, it's horrifying. That was uh, Morgan Archikino. Morgan, where should people go to find more of the work that you're doing? Um, they can find me on Twitter at Lavender and Red. That's it. Lavender Red and occasionally on the uh, on the Sputnik News website as well. Thank you so much for joining us. We really appreciate it. John and I are going to take a break and come back to uh, have an update on what exactly is going on in Pakistan, which seems like some pretty big protests over the weekend. Uh, we'll also talk about two acquittals. In the case against Michigan, uh, right. supposed plotters against Michigan Governor Gret Whitmer and uh, Greg Gretchen, Gretchen Whitmer, Gret, I shorten it to Gret, <laughs> uh, and uh, maybe see where the rest of that case is going and a lot more topics. You'll hear them all here on Political Misfits. We're live in D.C. and we'll be right back. Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik, where we bring you news, politics, and culture without the red and blue treatment. I'm John Kiriakou, here with my co-host, Michelle Witte. It was a busy news weekend, both domestically and abroad. Yahoo News reported that a Chinese ophthalmologist who goes by the name Fat Ping was arrested recently at Kennedy Airport and charged with trying to bribe African officials. He used his one phone call, get this, to call James Biden, the president's brother, Biden told Yahoo News that the call was actually meant for Hunter Biden, which doesn't make the situation any better and was also which also raises some counterintelligence questions. In other news, two Michigan men accused of conspiring to kidnap Governor Gretchen Whitmer were acquitted. The jury is still deliberating on two other defendants. Elon Musk, who last week bought nine percent of Twitter, announced over the weekend that he would not join the company's board of directors after all. And just before we came into the studio, he said that he wants to turn Twitter's headquarters into a homeless shelter. Facebook censored a Black Lives Matter story that we told you about last week. Buffalo cops were cleared of shoving and seriously injuring an elderly man who ended up with a traumatic brain injury. And Pakistan has a new government. We're joined from New York by Ted Rawl. He's an award-winning political cartoonist, columnist, and author. His latest book is called The Stringer, and he's co-host of the DMZ America podcast with Ted Rawl and Scott Stantis. You can find more of his work at www.ral.com. Welcome back, Ted. Thanks, John. Good to be back. Ted, lots to talk about, huh? Let's start with, uh, with Hunter Biden. I tried to ignore the Hunter Biden story for a long time as long as possible, mostly because presidents usually don't have the ability to control their family members. You know, and, and we, I think you and I and well, the three of us with Michelle talked last week or week before about, you know, Richard Nixon's brother and Billy Carter and 
the long history of uh, presidential siblings who uh, who seem to be troublemakers. Hunter Biden seems now to be dragging his father down whatever hole he happens to be going down. Joe Biden said as recently as two weeks ago that he doesn't believe Hunter has done anything wrong. He shouldn't have said anything, of course, because that's interfering with an ongoing investigation. But we now have evidence at least of influence peddling, maybe failing to register as a foreign agent, maybe income tax evasion. First, Ted, tell us about this guy who got arrested at JFK and how he fits into the Hunter Biden situation. First of all, I'm going to have to come up with a really cool nickname like Fat Ping, uh, just to be able to feel happy with myself. Um, the guy's name uh, is far less colorful, Patrick Ho. And this is some insanely, in preparation for this, I was trying, I read this piece probably seven times, and it's really complicated and convoluted. Uh, but basically, uh, it seems that Hunter Biden's firm got in got in deep with this guy, Patrick Ho, and another Chinese national through an energy company based in China called CEFC China Energy. And during this entire period, there were a lot of cash transfers that have come to light uh, through bank records that have been released to the Senate Judiciary Committee. Uh, there's uh, over a million, one and a, almost one and a half million dollars got uh, transferred from Hunter Biden's consulting firm to his uncle James Biden's consulting firm. Uh, then it looks like another million dollars uh, went back and forth the other way. So it kind of implies uh, what those of us like me who used to be in banking call a kickback mm -hmm. arrangement. Um, and uh, it's it's just the, the, the whole thing is like, I guess what this really boils down to is most American voters don't care if Hunter Biden is a sleazebag. They care if Joe Biden is a sleazebag. Exactly. And the question and the question is, did you know, did a did Hunter Biden uh, sell influence? The answer to that question seems off to be almost certainly yes. Or he peddled it. Um, the qu question B is, did anybody anybody seem to take him up on it? That seems like, well, yes, in a sense, the Burisma thing. Uh, in Ukraine, which is hilarious because the U.S. is now in deep in a war in Ukraine. Uh, you know, <laughs> considering the Hunter Biden story, it's funny that just nobody makes that connection in mainstream media. Um, but then, the, so then the real crux of the question is, did Joe, was Joe Biden okay with it? Would he have been at most willing to accept like the million dollar payment as quote unquote the big guy? Or is he? Or was he? Did he just turn a blind eye to it? The problem for Joe Biden is what's not there. There is no evidence whatsoever that, a la Jimmy Carter with Billy Beer, he ever called up his near do well drug addled son and said, uh, "Dude, cut it out. Stop it. Uh, you don't. I'm not going to. I'm not for sale. The vice presidency is not for sale." Um, you know, I'm not whatever you're doing, you're selling something that I'm not going to do and uh, leave me out of it. There's just no evidence that that ever happened. And it hasn't even been alleged or floated by anyone that that might have happened. So we're going to have to assume it never did. And to me, that smells. Yeah, I think I think that's you've hit the nail on the head right there. 
Nobody's alleging that it didn't happen. And I want to hear my president, whether it's Joe Biden or or any other president in a situation like this, I want my president to come out and say, this is what happened. I told him to cut it out. I told him that the vice presidency is not for sale. I told him that he needs to report his contacts to the Justice Department, et cetera, et cetera. And we haven't heard any of that. None of it coming out of the White House. So I, I think you're right, Ted. I think that there are two things we're looking at here. Hunter Biden's in trouble. There are at least three different avenues of inquiry, all three of which lead to felonies. And now we've got, you know, what may be credible accusations that at the very least, the president knew about it and did nothing to stop it. It's a little bit frightening. At the very least. At the very least. And that is not like Jimmy. And that's not like Jimmy Carter. Jimmy Carter was deeply irritated and annoyed. Embarrassed. By by his, and embarrassed by his brother's, um, you know, by the way, extremely trivial and small activities compared to this. Um, you know, trying to sell his terrible beer. Um, you know, I mean, that's, I mean, it's kind of almost comical looking back on it. Um, there's just, you know, this is on a whole new scale. I mean, we're talking about seven figure bribes, basically. Um, you know, the Burisma thing by itself was influence peddling. I mean, you know, he wasn't qualified for that job. No. You, the two of us here talking about this topic would either of us would have been better qualified to work for Burisma than Hunter Biden. <laughs> I mean, we, we know about ga- gas and oil pipelines and, and energy economy to some extent. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, it's absurd. Um, and, uh, I, you know, so I, th- I think this thing is, you can tell there's a, you know, there's definitely a, you know, there's definitely a lot of smoke. I think the fact that there's fire is not just, People like you and I, I mean, the New York Times and the Washington Post finally having to acknowledge the laptop, the New York Post story and so on is, you know, that's to me indicates that they can no longer uh, brush it aside. It, it, you know, this thing is just heating up. Mm-hmm. It's, it's ugly. And I hate to say it, it, it does make Joe look at bare minimum passively corrupt at, yes. at bare minimum. Agreed. It does. Hey, let's switch to this uh, this Michigan uh, case. Uh, I think we've mentioned in the past that when the story first broke, many of us across the country thought, oh, my gosh, it's this domestic terrorism. It's these crazy militia people. They're trying to kidnap the governor. God knows what they were going to do with her. Were they going to kill her? They were going to blow up this bridge so that the cops couldn't get to her to liberate her. None of that was true. None of it. So when the defendants were first arrested, we were all led to believe that this was the crime of the century. Now it turns out that half the people involved in the case were FBI agents or FBI informants, and that it was the FBI that suggested the plot in the first place. Now, this is an ongoing theme. We hear this a lot. We heard it with the Route 82 bridge uh, arrests in Cleveland that I rail about all the time. But usually, being set up by the FBI is not a defense. Uh, we saw that with a Christmas plot in Portland, Oregon, a couple of years ago. We saw it uh, in in uh, Seattle a couple of years before that. We saw it in Cleveland. You can say the FBI set me up. You're still going to be found guilty. That's not what happened on Friday in Michigan. These guys said the FBI set me up. Two of them were acquitted. Two of them, the jury is still deliberating. Um, 
What are your thoughts? Have we turned a corner here on, on these FBI so-called sting operations? Well, we have in Michigan anyway. Um, I think they're going to continue to pursue these kinds of operations uh, in, st- in, st- in states and in uh, municipalities where they feel like they can get away with it and the law doesn't protect the defendants from what is, quite frankly, kind of an, you know, trying to create, uh, you know, you're trying to prosecute people for crimes that not only didn't happen, but wouldn't have happened. Mm-mm. Now, Mich- now, Michigan law does allow entrapment as a defense in the same way that it did not work for like the defendants in the Abscam scandal, uh, which uh, was, uh, you know, immortalized by the right. movie American Hustle. Uh, the in, so what's interesting about uh, Michigan law, and I, I kind of think this should be the law everywhere federally, um, is they have an objective versus subjective test. And, and for the question for the jury, and this is still a high bar, but apparently the prosecution failed to meet that bar in the, in the Whitmer case, is whether or not the accused defendants were predisposed to commit the crimes or not. So in other words, like you could still, the defense does not work. Um, if the person was not predisposed to to do it, if they were just they just wouldn't have done it. It wouldn't have even crossed their minds. Like, for example, in these ISIS recruitment cases, mm-hmm. if, you, if you were not if you were, you know, you're minding your own business and you were just going to stay at home and you were never going to travel to Syria to join ISIS. But then, the you know, the under undercover cop says, come on, come on, come on. You know, you want to. All the cool kids are doing it. And then eventually, eventually you, you accede and you do it. Uh, you know, you would have a defense in Michigan. On the other hand, if you were kind of like the kind of dude who was always into ISIS and you were talking about doing it and someone's just like, hey, by the way, I got I got you a ticket. And then you're like, great, I'm going. That might you may not have a defense under Michigan law. Um, in this case, it looks like the jury decided that objectively uh, the these at least two defendants uh, would not it just wouldn't have crossed their minds. It's not something that they were they were not going to. Try to kidnap the governor of, of Michigan. Yeah. Switching over to Twitter, Elon Musk uh, made a splash last week when he bought more than 9% of the company. Free speech proponents were happy about it because the world's richest man claims to be a free speech absolutist. And a lot of people said, oh, well, he's the cool billionaire. So now I'll be able to say anything I want to say on Twitter, even if that might be ridiculous. Uh, But then yesterday, Elon Musk pulled out, backed out of a board position and then deleted all of his tweets related to his purchase in the in the company. This morning, I saw uh, very briefly an interview that he gave to Fox News in which he said that he wanted to turn Twitter's headquarters into a homeless shelter, which goes to show you how much respect he has for the company that he just bought into. Does this presage a hostile? Musk takeover of Twitter. Why is he doing this? These statements don't mesh with his actions. I'm just not clear on exactly what he's trying to accomplish here. Well, you know, it's always hard to read tea tea leaves when it comes to Elon Musk. I mean, this is a guy who almost lost his company because he insisted uh, on smoking weed on video. Um, (laughs) So, not that there's anything wrong with that. But uh, and it's also just as an aside, kind of annoying to me that uh, we live in a society that uh, relies on the benevolence of uh, random uh, sort of uh, psychologically dubious billionaires. Now, that said, um, since we are reading the the tea leaves, it does look like we're looking at a hostile takeover. Uh, He 
uh, aside from other things, Musk liked a tweet in which uh, another Twitter user suggested that he had backed out of the deal uh, to take a seat on the board because Twitter executives had told him to, quote unquote, play nice and not speak freely. Mm. So I think it seems like one of the preconditions for sitting on the board of a major corporation is, uh, you know, you have to uh, stay on message. Seems reasonable. Um, And uh, he was like, well, uh, quite reasonably, he's like, I'm not he didn't seem like he's willing to abide by that. And if you were uh, planning a hostile takeover, you're going to need to talk down the talk down the company that you're planning to seize. You're going to say the company's not run well. I can do a better job uh, if you you know the, 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 if you if the if I don't get my way and we don't get the changes I want. If I'm not allowed to buy more blocks of shares, whatever it is that he mm-hmm. wants, mm-hmm. Um, he's going to you know he's going to talk down the share price until major investors insist that he does get what he wants. So I think clearly there's a takeover attempt in the offing. Twitter's been viewed, the the share price has been viewed as somewhat undervalued in recent months. So it would be like, it would be a good time. It just seems like, you know, this is is, uh, Musk's opportunity to basically own a major media outlet. Yeah, right. We talked last week, uh, Ted, about... uh a house in Studio City, California, that had been purchased by Black Lives Matter, presumably using um, donated funds. And um, they flipped this house for three times what its assessed value was. Facebook, it turns out, has censored that story. You can't post that story on uh, on Facebook. It's a legitimate news story. Why the heavy handedness? Why Why don't they want people to see this story? Yeah, and Facebook, when they suppress it uh, in their messaging, they don't explain why. They just no. say it violates their standards, uh, although it's hard to see really, if you read their standards, that there's anything about this story uh, that violates the standards. I mean, look, uh, if we have to go with Awesome's Razor here, uh, simplest explanation is best. Yeah. Seems likely that Black Lives Matter is a protected class, uh, you know, in terms of uh, who you're allowed to criticize. Uh, personally, I think this is a... I think the the story about these real estate purchases is nothing short of disgusting. Um, you know, people donate money. This is the kind of thing where you have a, a great cause, you know, opposing police brutality. There could be no better cause, anti-racism. And it gets corrupted by some sort of opportunists, opportunists who are looking instead of instead of trying to help black people. Yeah. Uh, they're, you know, and they're trying to uh, just enrich themselves and line their pockets. And I would say, Ted, I would just jump in and say on the topic of like who's a protected class or not, you know, I think it seems to be this particular strata of the leadership of this foundation, right? Because I think there's no, no barrier to uh, demeaning and smearing uh, activists to continue to work on the ground with local chapters of Black Lives Matter, in particular ones who have been, you know, calling out these very people for several years now, right? They, they can still be called, I don't know, troublemakers and thugs and criminals mm-hmm. and the like. But when you're talking about this particular cadre of people who have been the recipients of uh, money, quite a lot of money, from quite a lot of Democratic donors, I think I think that is this, you know, I think that's the specific cohort that are protected and to hell with anybody else who's actually working to improve the lives of people in, in communities that have been sort of terrorized and underserved. 
Yeah, Michelle, no, thank you for that. I think it is important to distinguish uh, Black Lives Matter, the movement versus the Black Lives Matter Foundation. Uh, those are two different things. I That's mean, right. um, it didn't it wasn't nearly as true, but there were allegations that money had been misallocated for for that had been donated to Occupy Wall Street. Um, you know, whenever you're getting donor money for a good lefty cause, uh, everything needs to be insanely transparent. Um, and people need to and the leadership needs to not be taking any money out of the till. Um, you know, that's just you know, basic ethics. And it, it just hasn't happened here with BLM. And unfortunately, that's creating a huge opening for right-wing media to discredit a movement. And, and that's the part that really makes me angry, not to mention the theft of donor money. That just makes me crazy. I want to talk about these, uh, these cops in Buffalo, New York. Uh, you know, the, I, I have a bias. I admit my bias. Uh, I'm, I'm not pro-police. But uh, these two Buffalo policemen who who shoved a 75 year old man, causing him to fall backwards, fracture his skull and sustain a traumatic brain injury have been cleared of all wrongdoing. And I mean, there will be no criminal case against them. There will be no internal discipline against them. Uh, You'll recall that this happened during a Black Lives Matter rally in, in 2020. I think it was in June of 2020. The victim, a guy named Martin Gugino, spent weeks in the hospital with this brain injury. The doctor, um, I'm sorry, the, the, if you'll recall the video, uh, he was walking up to these police holding a, a Black Lives Matter sign. A policeman shoved him hard. He fell backwards and slammed his head on the ground. The, the determination in the case was that the reason he fell was not because he was shoved, but because his hands were holding the sign. And so when he was shoved, he couldn't maintain his balance using his hands. Seriously. They also said that, that other mitigating factors for the cops were that he surprised the officers which then interfered with their ability to do their duty. Sorry, he was just standing there with the sign. Yeah, he was standing like, there with the sign. Phalanx of cops walked. Exactly walked by. right. Yeah, I'm sorry. I saw how that man moved, and I oh, don't yeah. know if he could. I don't know if he could surprise a sloth. Ridiculous! A 75 year old man. He startled them. Ted, this stinks like a police cover up to me. What are, What are your thoughts on it? No, obviously, I totally agree. And you know, as if what you just described is wasn't disgusting enough, and I think we all saw that video numerous times. Sure, uh, I did. Um, was the fact that the police also expressed complete what they called depraved indifference uh, to this man after they assaulted him? Yeah, they didn't him. treat him. They didn't. Yeah, they, they didn't, didn't come they to didn't, his aid. They didn't, they didn't stop and check him. Uh, you know, they didn't. They did. They didn't see. It wasn't like. Oh man, are you okay? Uh, you know, sir. You know, like you know, call nine one one. I mean, nothing happened. They literally kept walking. The guy walked by. The cop who shoved him uh, walked up to him, shoved him without even like breaking his stride. Um, you know, and mm -hmm. just kept walking. It was just like, you know, it was like the way that you would just, I don't know, push a tree branch out of the way when you're walking through the woods. Um, and, and to say that, like, it, I mean, he was assaulted. He was not, 
you know, there are buff 75-year-olds. This was not one of them. This is a this guy was a pretty frail, gangly dude. And um, you know, he was just, he went down like a ton of bricks, and they just didn't care. The cops were armed to the teeth, they had Kevlar on. Yeah. The whole thing is like it's ridiculous. It's like it's like, oh, like you know, maybe he you know, he, he was going to injure the cop's pinky, you know, with his body while while it was while he was being shoved. I don't know. Um, you know, it stinks to high heaven. Uh, these cops should be prosecuted, yeah. and including including uh, the part the the assailants are you know partners who didn't provide aid because yes. that was also their duty. Uh, the guy could have died. I mean, you know, it's it's a, he's lucky that he's doing as well as he is. Now it's it's foul. And if I lived in Buffalo, I'd be out protesting. I would be too. I'm a little sensitive to this. Sensitive to this. My my dad uh, died in a fall accidentally. He fell and he hit his head, and uh, and never regained consciousness. People, a, a lot of people don't realize. I didn't realize how serious falls can be. When my dad fell, um, his doctor told us that uh, that we would be surprised. How many people, especially people over the age of 65, die in falls every single day? He told us that it was one of the leading causes of death among his patients over the age of 65. And then I subsequently read that it's like the sixth leading cause of death among people over that age. Uh, and and here, here's a traumatic brain injury that was purposefully inflicted. And they just got away with it scot free. I'm I'm outraged by this. I really am. Same thing happened with my mother. My mother, oh. my, my you know, my mother was uh, died at the age of uh, she fell at the age of eighty two. Oh. Um, severe fall. A year later, she was gone, and it was like it was. Fr- it all started with the fall. Yes, I remember talking to her a year or two before, and she was like, "Oh, how do I stay in my house? How do I keep my life?" I'm like, "Just don't fall." Yeah. <laughs> you know? Right. Those were my father's last words. My father's last words to my mother was, were, I, I promise I won't fall. And as soon as they came out of his mouth, he went backwards and landed on his head. Wow. Yeah. So this is very, very dangerous. Very dangerous. And the cops just don't seem to care. At least the cops in Buffalo, New York. Ted, I want to turn to, uh, to Pakistan. Pakistan has a new prime minister now. Imran Khan was unceremoniously thrown out of office over the weekend with a parliamentary vote of no confidence that he tried to forestall. He blamed the U.S. for everything, uh, which he's done over the last 12 years, anytime he runs into political problems. The opposition, and this is Shabazz Sharif, the brother of Nawaz Sharif. Nawaz Sharif was prime minister several times. Um, He was prosecuted, convicted, sentenced to 10 years in prison for corruption. Now he lives in exile in London. Um, His brother is going to be the new prime minister, or I guess today is the new prime minister. But Shabazz Sharif said, now the Americans didn't have anything to do with your downfall. Your downfall is that inflation is out of control. Unemployment is out of control and you've run afoul of the military and the foreign policy community. And you can't be prime minister of Pakistan if you don't have the support of the military. What are you, your views on this? And do you think that there's going to be any change in Pakistani policy toward the U.S. or U.S. policy toward Pakistan? Well, Pakistani politics are, as you know, John, infamously Byzantine. Oh, my and, gosh. Uh, it's and, ridiculous. And the fact and it's bizarre to think that, uh, you know, the, that Nawaz Sharif's relative, who was himself 
kind of uh, deposed in a U.S.-backed, uh, let's just say, sort of regime change light uh, when General uh, Pervez Musharraf yes. came to to uh, to, to uh, power, and I believe it was 1999. Yep. Um, during the uh, sort of as part of sort of a vaguely unholy alliance with the Afghan Taliban over over the Kargil conflict, right? The third Kashmir war. You're absolutely right. So it's weird that, uh, you know, someone like that, who Nawaz Sharif was reportedly uh, mistreated terribly uh, while he was taken into custody during that coup. So it's surprising that he would feel he would be willing to say the U.S. had nothing to do with it. Um, what you, the U.S., yes, you have to, you can't run Pakistan without the military. The military picks up the trash. The, the military yeah. is... They run the whole country, yeah, uh, you know. They do. It's and um, but at the same time, it's also true that clearly the hand of the U.S. was on this situation. Um, the 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 deposed prime minister was kind of like a a slight personality, you know, former cricketer. So he's right. kind of like it follows in that tradition of a sort of like Zelensky or sort of like or Trump, like the celebrity politician. Um, you know, who I think he just never really kind of knew what he was doing. I can't I'm, I'm amazed that he lasted this long. Yeah, he really did. It was a nice run for Pakistan and he didn't end up dead or anything. And, and he's and he wasn't corrupt, which is what Pakistan really, really needed. He had plenty of his own money. Huge cricket star. He had been married to a minor member of the uh, of the British royal family. Everybody loved him. He built children's hospitals around the country. He was the right guy at the right time for Pakistan. He had a long run, and now they're tired of him. Yeah, and I think a lot of it has to do with this is sort of partly a um, a reflection of the Russia-Ukraine conflict, right? Where um, where India has is sort of in a light alliance with Russia, um, and the out, and the outgoing prime minister was viewed as too friendly with Russia and the United States. He's always trying to play Pakistan versus India all the time mm -hmm. um, and uh, play them off against each other. And they switch back and forth, kind of like Russia, kind of like China and Taiwan. Um, and so it seems like this is the latest where uh, the U.S. I think the U.S. did did have a, a you know, they, they made it clear to the military and to their, you know, their their pet parliamentarians that it was time for him to go. Um, the Pakistan's the beneficiary of many, many millions of dollars in U.S. military aid. And they have a very close relationship, as you know, between their intelligence agency, the ISI, and ours. So, I, you know, who knows? But to say the U.S. had nothing to do with a regime change in, in Pakistan, that's like, that's hard <laughs> to believe. Right. Hey, one final quick question. Um, there, there was a huge... Uh, defeat the mandate rally in Los Angeles over the weekend. Um, Los Angeles, Southern California, of course, has a reputation for being very, very progressive. So how does an anti-vaccine rally with thousands of participants happen in L.A. of all places? Well, like I always like to say, just because a place is predominantly one thing doesn't mean it doesn't have a lot of the other. Right. I mean, uh, you know, Miss Mississippi is 40 percent Democratic. Uh, yeah. Still a lot of right. people. Right. Um, so in in Southern and L.A. does have that said a kind of a very strong conservative um, base. I mean, first of all, it draws people who come to these rallies are not necessarily required to be from Los Angeles. You can get people who come in over the you know over the hill uh, from the valley from 
the 818 from people who come in from uh, the, the Sierra, uh, yep. you know, the, uh, the, the high Sierras. There, there's a lot of conservatives who flock in from Orange County and so on. Um, I used to do talk radio in L.A. at a right-wing radio station, KFI, which was like the Dr. Huh. Laura Schlesinger and, oh, Dr. Wow. and uh, Rush Limbaugh station. And they were – I was like the, you know, the token lefty, right. me and like one or two other guys. And it was, you know, the callers were conservative. I mean, it is, it is a, you know, the, we're talking about a place where, as you know, we've talked about this. Uh, my former employer, the LA Times, yep. was for a time owned by the LAPD. Uh, the LA, uh, when, when I was fighting them, I tried to reach out to the alternative press, the LA Weekly. The LA Weekly, the Alt Weekly had an affiliation with the LAPD. Oh I mean, God. so, so there are, there's a lot of conservatism out there. You know, it's kind of like, even if you look at quote unquote Democrats, like the Eli Brode types, the powers that be, they're kind of like not, they're just sort of Democrats by brand, but they're not liberals. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So I'm not, yeah, I think there's a lot of concern. I mean, you know, there's a, you were talking about a, the biggest police force in the country, over 40,000 cops, highly militarized. The Angelinos put up with that even while they have massive amounts of poverty and home, crazy homeless population. So, uh, you know. It, it doesn't shock me at all. It's a long-winded way to say, like, there's a lot of right-wingers. Yeah. Well, Ted Rawl, thanks for joining us. Ted joined us from New York. He's an award-winning political cartoonist, columnist, and author. His latest book is called The Stringer, and he's co-host of the DMZ America podcast called DMZ America with Ted Rawl and Scott Stantis. Is that right? That's correct. Good. And you can find more of his work at www.ral.com. Go there and check it out. It's important. Um, Ted, thanks for joining us. In the meantime, everybody is listening to Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik. Stay tuned. We're going to come right back with another guest. on Radio Sputnik, where we bring you news, politics, and culture without the red and blue treatment. I'm John Kiriakou, here with Michelle Witte. In Billings, Montana, a new law forces massage therapists, including those working from home, to open the door for government agents to search their properties and patient treatment logs on demand, insisting that the police or code enforcement return with a warrant, as the Constitution requires, can be grounds for arrest prosecution, and even jail time. So is refusing to open the door or refusing to open locked cabinets or any other spaces. The city has trumpeted the law as a tool for combating prostitution, of all things, but it sweeps too broadly, ensnaring within its grasp professional, law-abiding massage therapists who care deeply about the well-being and privacy of their patients and their employees, and it seems patently unconstitutional. We're joined from Washington by Bruce Fine. He's a former deputy associate. I'm sorry. He's a former associate deputy attorney general of the United States and one of our country's leading constitutional scholars. Welcome back, Bruce. Thank you for inviting me, John. Bruce, thanks so much. This, you know, as soon as I read this article today, 
I thought of you and it, this thing just screams unconstitutional. Uh, can a law like what I've just described in Billings, Montana, be constitutional? Is that even possible? Fighting crime is one thing, but a dragnet that just ensnares every massage therapist in town seems to be far too much. Well, the case law is a little bit complicated, John. Really? The U.S. Supreme Court has held that in heavily regulated industries, and one of the first cases concerned firearms, that ATF can go in and they can seek to determine whether a firearms dealer is complying with the law uh, on a random basis without any probable cause. That's because this court said, well, historically, uh, firearms dealers are heavily regulated like alcohol. And so the court has carved out very, very narrow exceptions, uh, and especially when the kind of violation is a clear and present danger to the safety of the community, like misuse of guns. Uh, Prostitution obviously doesn't fall into that category. And moreover, uh, there isn't any history of uh, heavily regulating massage parlors, Um, certainly nothing like guns or alcohol. Uh, And so I don't believe those narrow exceptions apply, Uh, especially because in this case, unlike the firearms case, the uh, the people to be searched oftentimes operate out of their homes, which is a very right. privacy protection. Uh, and moreover, I think that even uh, the Billings thought uh, it was dubious uh, constitutionally uh, to authorize the police without warrants to enter these premises by requiring uh, anybody who wants to operate a massage to consent in advance, that is, to give consent under duress, that is, you can't offer massages unless you waive your Fourth Amendment rights. That's clearly a flagrantly unconstitutional condition. Right. I actually wanted to ask you that. That was my next question. Uh, the police have said that they have a way around these constitutional questions because the way the law was drafted, it says that sole practitioners who work from home must waive their right to see a warrant in order to apply for the massage license in the first place. Do you think that 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 changes anything? No, no. There's a very famous case called Lane versus Wilson in the United States Supreme Court. And the court says the Constitution forbids both uh, sophisticated and simple minded violations. You know, so this is uh, clearly unconstitutional condition placed upon operating massage parlors. Uh, it would be like saying, well, if you want to operate the massage parlor, you have to agree to waive your Fifth Amendment privilege against self-incrimination. <laughs> prosecute you really and you have to waive your right to counsel if we actually take you to court <laughs> you can't do that uh, you have to have foundation on its own merits uh, to justify these encroachments on civil liberties so I do believe that the case uh, that the the ordinance will be struck down as unconstitutional mm. unfortunately we do have a law in the United States called the uh, this, the Civil Rights Attorney's Fees Award Act of 1976. So I think what's going to happen is the buildings will have to pay the attorney's fees for the plaintiffs who bring the case and hold this unconstitutional. Uh, and really, however, it, it is an earmark, uh, John, of the diminishing expectations of privacy. Uh, not so much in this kind of situation, but over the, the electronic uh, age where the things that you do uh, on your Facebook and on Twitter and on email, uh, unless the Supreme Court changes this ridiculous third-party doctrine that I spoke about earlier, becomes vulnerable to, to searches. Uh, typically, if you find right now, for instance, uh, and the Trump people are, I think, disappointed that, that uh, Trump 
uh, was more authoritarian than they hoped. Uh, they are trying to prevent the January 6th committee investigating the January 6th insurrection from getting access to their phone records, uh, emails, uh, which the committee wants to do. And under the current doctrine of the Supreme Court, uh, uh, these uh, uh, Trump uh, officials, uh, former officials, do not have any protectable interest in their phone records. Uh, that's certainly not going to survive any uh, court test. Uh, unless the U.S. Supreme Court reverses itself. But, uh, they're getting hoisted on their own petard when it comes to law enforcement on that score. Uh, Bruce, uh, you you just reminded me of something um, that I read earlier today. I want to get your reaction to, but and I want to I want to ask you before I go into other prepared questions that I had. You um, you were one of the Justice Department officials responsible for uh for efforts to impeach President Nixon. You helped to write the articles of impeachment, and you were also active in the um, in the impeachment of President Bill Clinton. Uh, there was a piece today in Politico saying that uh, House Minority Leader Kevin McCarthy has told Republican backbenchers that, that he would not support efforts to impeach uh, Joe Biden that these backbenchers had prepared articles of impeachment based on Joe Biden's um, connections with Hunter Biden's business in Ukraine and uh, and in China. Um, with what little we know so far about Joe Biden himself and Burisma and China, uh, are you seeing anything that's impeachable? The first thing um, it seems to me we need to think about is uh, impeachment is calculated to redress abuses of power when you're in office, efforts to subvert the Constitution. I believe the references made were um, prior to Joe Biden yes. in the presidency. So it's a little bit dubious, although I think uh, Joe Biden, I'm not sure whether any of these would extend to the period uh, when uh Joe Biden was vice president, but still, it's, it, it, they are trying to impeach him not as vice president, but as president. Uh, I don't want to say that there could never be an instance where something had been concealed uh, and was so outrageous, you know, mass murder, that you might not impeach because it was such a, uh, a, a stigma on the presidency. But simply uh, something of, of this sort uh, where, say, it, it antedated uh, any actions that he has as president, uh, it would not be a high crime and misdemeanor, certainly as envisioned by the framers. You need to remember, however, that the phrase high crime and misdemeanor, and it's attached after treason and bribery. So you get the sense in, in customary language in, 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 in uh, interpreting statutes is that if the high crimes and misdemeanor is preceded by two specific examples, treason and bribery, very, very <laughs> that high crimes and misdemeanors has to be a sufficient severity that is a little bit like treason and uh, bribery. And that seems to me uh, in the description you provide of the alleged wrongdoing Hunter Biden uh, far short of the mark. Excellent. Uh, Bruce, three years ago, Police raided the prosecutor's office in St. Louis, Missouri, as part of the uh, the case against former Governor Greitens, who's now running for the Senate. The raid was because of the Greitens prosecution and the police broke down the door of the prosecutor's I.T. room. Mm -hmm. 
they seized the uh, the server. They formed a they they forced rather a, a lower level employee to turn over passwords for the entire computer system without a warrant. The prosecutor is now facing a bar association ethics committee hearing today. But the author of the book Prosecutorial Misconduct, which I, I guess is sort of the the standard for what constitutes misconduct says that the prosecutor was not engaged in misconduct. Uh, She actually called this case nonsense. Should we be worried about police actions against prosecutors who are targeting the police or their supporters in these cases? Well, there's always concern when the police uh, seem uh, to be uh, endeavoring to advance their own interests rather than law enforcement. It wouldn't be typical that police would be concerned whether a lawyer uh, is disciplined, right? Um, <laughs> right. Something that lawyers are concerned with. In this particular case, and, and, and I, I guess from what's in the public domain that I've read, I'm not exactly sure what authorized them anyway to uh, be investigating the prosecutor. Right. It's the police jurisdiction is crimes. And 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 to commit a disciplinary infraction as a lawyer is not a crime. You don't go to prison. Uh, you may lose a license, but it's not a crime. So what authority they had to be investigating at all seems a whole mystery. Meeting. Now, putting that aside, uh, the gist of the uh, the complaint before the disciplinary board goes back to. Uh, a longstanding case of the Supreme Court called Brady versus Maryland. It's mm-hmm. ordinarily required of prosecutors uh, that they turn over exculpatory evidence to the accused, uh, of which they are aware. Uh, and in this instance, the accuser of Greitens, I guess his wife or ex-wife, was it that? Or maybe, the, I forget. No, it wasn't his wife. Or was it the wife or his girlfriend or whatever, the one he was abusing, was interviewed and the allegation is that the prosecutor did not disclose on a timely basis exculpatory information relating to an interview, a pretrial interview, had with Greitens' accuser. Now, it's, in some sense, it's harmless because uh, he was Greitens never was successfully prosecuted anyway. The, the case uh, was blown away, so it's hard to show prejudice. Uh, so why are you even moving forward on something that had no actual adverse impact on the accused. I don't want to overstate saying that can never happen, but something sufficiently egregious. Now, so what is so-called Brady material, what's exculpatory not, can sometimes be a gray area. Mm-hmm. And in this instance, I don't know what the accuser said to see whether some of the remarks were exculpatory or, or not. Uh, but it surely is not typically the kind of thing that you would have any disciplinary action for, an error of judgment, uh, even malpractice as a lawyer uh, is not automatically disciplinary uh, activity. Um, So it does seem to me that uh, there are ulterior political motives behind this particular initiative Mm -hmm. because it's it's pushing uh, the law in a pioneering area. Bruce, uh, one last question for you. Uh, Let's talk for just a minute about this kidnapping conspiracy case in Michigan. 
Two of the four defendants accused of plotting to kidnap Governor uh, Whitmer, Gretchen Whitmer, were acquitted on Friday. The jury is still deliberating on the other two. It's clear that these men were set up by the FBI and that it was the FBI's idea to kidnap the governor. And that's usually not a defense, but it seems to have been a defense in this case. Uh, I asked Ted Rawl this in the last half hour. Um, have we turned a corner on these FBI entrapment cases uh, in in so-called domestic terrorism? Or is this just specific to Michigan in this one case? Every case is unique. Obviously, Michigan doesn't have impact outside of Michigan in terms of the precedent. I think I, I think my understanding, John, is that with regard to the other two, uh, they came back, the jury hung, they didn't come up with a verdict, and the prosecutor has not decided whether to retry them. I don't think the jury is still outstanding. Okay. That's a minor point. Um, now, there wasn't actually an entrapment. Entrapment is a very difficult defense to, to plead because you have to say, I did it, but uh, the criminality was planted in my mind by the uh, by the police. Right. Uh, but as soon as you say you did it, <laughs> the jury thinks, uh, <laughs> well, listen, so what? You know, if you actually committed the crime uh, just because it got planted, you know, you should have had sufficient strength to resist the temptation. Uh, unfortunately, I think it's not just in domestic terrorism. Oftentimes, the international terrorism cases uh, also feature uh, very, very dominant prominence of the FBI and, and the planting and watching around and you don't, doesn't Allah hate the Christians and things like that. Uh, and you kind of wonder if, if you have to make up, push people to become terrorists who aren't on their own, you know, how deep a threat is it? Really, don't you want to be focusing your law enforcement resources where there's already overt evidence that there's a tendency towards terrorism rather than manufacturing one? Uh, uh, but I think that um, in, in terms of, you know, turning the corner, no, I don't think that this is going to be uh, a case because entrapment wasn't, in fact, pled uh, that's going to have impact elsewhere. Remember, um, the, the FBI is not being sanctioned by this. They don't have any incentive to refrain. Uh, some of the commentary has been, well, they should have let the defendant down the road a little further before they tried to arrest right. Uh, but as we all know, uh, John, and it works the same as you experienced in the CIA, with the person who's out there on a day-to-day beat, and if they do something that may be legally uh, improper, but there's no sanction, their job isn't affected, they're not going to walk away from it. It's just part of the the, the, the operations of their business. Uh, it's uh, their business model. And because one case went astray, mm-hmm. there's no way this is going to change. Good point. Yep. Good point. Okay. That was the voice of Bruce Fine. He's a former associate deputy attorney general of the United States and one of the country's leading constitutional scholars. You're listening to Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik. We'll take a short break and we'll come right back. Stay tuned. Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik, where we bring you news, politics, and culture without the red and blue treatment. 
I'm Michelle Witte here with John Kiriakou bringing you a couple last headlines that caught our eye, and one of them was about JoJo Siwa. Of all things. <laughs> but really, look, I am way too old to have been interested in JoJo Siwa sure. as a, yeah. a children's entertainment. Right. Um, but I somehow became aware of her through this, you know, sort of internet. I think when she came out as gay is when I uh-huh. um, first became aware of her. But she's... You know, she she's one of the uh, crew of people who came to fame as a YouTuber. Mm-hmm. She was on um, uh, Dance Moms, I think, for two seasons. And she's, she's become an incredibly popular mm-hmm. uh, children's entertainer. Yep. Writing Singing, songs, dancing, performing songs, right. dancing. Yeah, she's hugely popular. She, I believe, ha- still has a contract with Nickelodeon. Yes. And I'm pretty sure in 2021 came out as gay, uh, which, you know, Made a, I made a lot of people very happy, actually. We're saying, well, we love Jojo Siwa. I'm so, you know, yeah. she's here's a child star. You know, she, she's 18 now, right? So she yes. came out when she was like 17. Uh, it's not as though she was, uh, you know, again, sexualizing children. No, no. Um, and she just the other day got a short haircut that looks very cute. I didn't think that I would be talking about this on a news show, but uh, she wasn't invited to the Nickelodeon Kids Choice Awards. And no. I don't think the two things are disconnected. And you I know, think and that that's dis- really sad. Despite the fact that she was nominated yeah. for a Kids Choice Award. How can you be nominated and not be invited? Yeah. And, you know, they, they pulled another stunt with her, too. I, I, I can't believe I'm talking about this either. Go ahead, but I mean, I think but- it's... She she has this hit song, the song that was nominated, and they forbade her from performing it on another show that she was doing for Paramount Plus, which is owned by Nickelodeon. Yeah. So, yeah, yeah. They're, they're picking on her. It is. It's really silly. And I do think it goes back to, you know, a, a, a definitely a conservative trend now to try yeah. to achieve uh, their sort of anti-gay, anti-trans, mm-hmm. uh, anti-reproductive rights goals. By deciding that, uh, you know, again, somehow heterosexual relationships and and heterosexuality is not sexualizing children, but uh, that merely the fact of being gay and having a girlfriend, if you're a girl, is somehow dangerous and bad and and groomy, right, and sexualizing children. And so, of course, it can't have a can't have a a girl who has been a star for what the past five years. Right. uh, Who has a huge following. Who happen to, you know, have come out and seems to be in a very cute relationship with, a, you know, who was her best friend. She's not allowed to perform in front of children right now because ridiculous. that's, yeah, it's ridiculous. Absolutely ridiculous. Right. And the, and the Jonas Brothers weren't, you know, intended to sexualize their children. Right. You know, <laughs> it's just such a sad, I mean, it would be funny, except that, like, I do think there's a lot of merit to the argument that is really done in the, um, done in service of just trying to eliminate eliminate gay people, eliminate trans people, which you can't do, but you can certainly make them miserable and make them hide and make them but afraid. But you can see how this is happening. You know, you start off with, uh, well, most recently, let's say with the uh, the Florida Don't Say Gay Bill. Mm-hmm. And the next thing you know, two weeks later, there's 16 states that have uh, written identical bills that are in different, you know, stages of the legislative process. So, yeah, I, I, I can see this an, as a concerted effort. And it is an awful, awful thing to accuse someone of is the other thing, right? It's not oh, yeah. like you're accusing someone of like, whatever, a lesser crime, like stealing office supplies right. or even sk- no, skimming a little off the calling someone a till. groomer? Calling someone a groomer, calling Those someone a threat to words. children is a really awful thing to accuse. And so like, again, yeah, to come up against that every day, to be ba- accused of being the scum of the earth. That's right. It's an awful state of affairs. And it's, uh, it's horrible that it's gotten to this state in the United States. 
I had another headline. Oh, yeah, we were talking about Dwayne Haskins. Poor Dwayne Haskins. Just a terrible, weird story uh, where the the, um, Steelers quarterback was uh, crossing, trying to cross a Miami highway at night and was hit by a car. It was, his car broke down. He was, he was actually getting ready to go back to Pittsburgh. He's one of the Steelers quarterback, was one of the Steelers quarterbacks, immensely popular, overall number 15 pick in the first round. Uh, He was quarterback for Washington, uh, whatever they're, I guess at the time they were the Washington football team. Mm And um, big, big star at Ohio State, 50 touchdowns in his uh, senior year. He uh, came in second in the Heisman Trophy uh, balloting. And he's one of these guys who, who, you know, was generous with his time and his money. He'd go to hospitals and meet kids suffering from cancer. The kind of guy that, that you really want a star football player to be. Yeah. And his car broke down on the highway in uh, in Miami. For whatever reason, he tried to cross the highway and he was hit by a dump truck and killed instantly. So, you know, they're they're mourning in Pitts in Pittsburgh. Yeah. And in Washington. I mean, this was the front page of the Washington Post too, yeah. because he didn't really fit into the to the Washington offensive package when he was here. Mm-hmm. But he was still immensely popular. Just a nice guy, a yeah. good guy. Completely unrelated news that I will slide in with our last minute. But uh, wouldn't you know it, Senate Democratic incumbents uh, are raising record first quarter fundraising halls. Mm-hmm. Uh, that that's doesn't just surprise been me. Announced. Yeah, I mean, they're, they're trying to defend the Senate by any means. Well, by any means necessary, but the means is just money. Right. It's just money. It's money. So it doesn't seem to be, uh, you know, pa- passing any legislation that's really important to, to any of their you constituents. Know, Donald Donald Trump, I'm sure, read the same article that that you and I read Mm -hmm. because all of a sudden he's been very active in some of these Senate races. He made a he made an endorsement in North Carolina that that may have swung the race for uh, for this obscure congressman Mm -hmm. uh, who was who was bound to be trounced in the Republican primary. And now it looks like he's going to win the thing. Thanks to Donald Trump. Yeah, but over it'll be the interesting weekend, to see what kind of influence he has uh, oh, yeah. in this election. And he in endorsed Do- uh, Dr. Oz in Pennsylvania on Friday, which enraged me. Well, Dr. Oz, who's a Turkish citizen. We're out of time. Yeah, uh, we're out of time. But John slides in one last insult to the Turks, as usual. Uh, yeah, we'll, we'll see you all tomorrow. Thanks to our guests and the engineers and producers here. On behalf of John Kiriakou and myself, Michelle Witte, thanks for listening. We will see you tomorrow. <laughs> 